And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. And uh, great to be with you today, Friday. Yes, ending uh, the week of broadcasting here in the dojo. Fantastic week. In fact, uh, we're going to continue uh, with our in-depth instruction today. Uh, As you know, yesterday we had Master Apologist William Albrecht on the show. And uh, we went in-depth on the early church and the scriptures in regards to the Holy Eucharist. And today we're going to do part two of that. We're going to continue on looking in the early church and uh, presenting all this uh, very fascinating uh, material from the earliest days of Christianity, pointing to the belief in the real, true, substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So it's always fun to have William in the show. And I think, like I always say on Fridays, like with any workout routine, you want to finish the routine strong. You know, if you're a runner, you want to do those last 10 or 20 yards, you know, go all out. Right. And uh, so we want to do that here on the broadcast, too. We want to finish this week strong and definitely with William Albrecht, we will. So that's coming up on the other side of the break on this side of the break. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to do our Finding the Fallacy today. Of course, it's Friday, so we switch things up. We're going to look at propaganda technique instead of an informal fallacy. Jason, propaganda technique is called the appeal to plain folk. The appeal to plain folk. Also, we meet an early church father. And that's the beautiful thing about this show, folks. If you're a regular listener, You'll learn an awful lot of informal fallacies. You'll also learn a lot about the early church and some of these saints that have preceded us. Some of them are very famous, like Jerome and Augustine, Gregory the Great. Some of them are infamous. Because we're using Jurgen's faith, the early fathers, he actually includes also heretical people. And some you probably never heard of. Maybe even if you're into apologetics. And this might be one of those. His name is Avergus Apontus. Avergus Apontus. And then, wait, I think uh, that's that's kind of uh, the cool th- thing about going systematically through um, these early church writers is uh, you get to discover people that you never heard of and learn a little bit about them. And therefore, you know, in discussions, you have a lot of different tools you can use to explain the faith. So Avergus Apontus is our early church father for today. So I want to begin by welcoming you all to the dojo. Welcome aboard, everybody. All of you listening on radio and, of course, our live stream audience. Hello. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on podcasts around the world. Um, that's super cool as well. Um I want to uh, give the official Dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. comes directly to me, questions at handsonapologetics.com. And uh, love hearing from you. And I also uh, appreciate when you give me heads up about people who are doing a great job on social media. 
Uh, already got a few suggestions that I'm starting to run down, uh, kind of behind here in the dojo. You know, the Midwest Command Center, it doesn't always function as efficiency as efficiently as, say, an analog watch. But it, it does sort of function. It just kind of clunks around. So uh, so we'll get there. We'll get there. I'm going to be checking out these leads. And by the way, if you have anybody in mind that you think is doing a great job explaining and defending faith on social media, and you think they'd be a good guest for the show, definitely shoot me an email at questions at handsonapologetics.com. Give me their name, uh, contact info, and a link to their stuff so I can check it out. And uh, if everything works out okay, maybe they'll be on the show. We could give them a leg up, a little bit of exposure, because uh, we're all on the same team, folks, right? We're on Team Christ, so we should be helping out each other, our fellow brothers and sisters. Um, also, it's Friday, so I want to mention a few things about a YouTube channel that William Albrecht and myself run on uh, the Old Testament canon. This is perhaps the, I, I think, the area of apologetics that is uh, incredibly important between Catholic-Protestant dialogues because there simply isn't a coherent, logical, historical case why Protestants reject seven Old Testament books that Catholics call the Deuterocanon, Protestants call the Apocrypha. And uh, so on that channel with William Albrecht and David Zavaris, we dive in deep into the issue of the Old Testament canon. We learn all sorts of really cool stuff about it. And these are, I mean, even amongst Catholics, the Deuterocanon is kind of the forgotten books of the Bible. I don't know why, because in some ways uh, they are incredibly, incredibly important and edifying and fun to read as well. So if you haven't done it already, please do. Go to YouTube and type in my name or type in Apocrypha Apocalypse. I know it's not exactly the most memorable name, but Apocrypha Apocalypse is the channel. And uh, if you're there, check it out. If you like it, please hit the thumbs up, hit the bell. And above all, if you can, subscribe. Uh, and leave comments too, by the way. All those things help the algorithm and it expands visibility. And unfortunately, you know, well, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, fortunately we live in a day where social media enables us to do evangelism on a scale that you couldn't have done 10, 20, 30 years ago. But unfortunately, sometimes you have to operate like a business and worry about things like exposure because more people learn about the channel, the more they have access to this information, and the more, um, you know, the more this information gets out into the public. So please help us on our mission. Go to uh, hands-on, or not, well, hands-on, go to hands-onapologetics.com, but go to um, Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube and sub and hit the like button and all that, and we truly appreciate it. Okay, let's go to our Finding the Fallacy. Today's Friday. It's a propaganda technique. It's called... The appeal to plain folk. Appeal to plain folk is a way a speaker convinces an audience of an idea is good because they are the same ideas that a vast majority of people like yourself. Another way, um, uh, another way this can be used is to portray something or somebody as 
just fitting in one of one of your could be your next door neighbor could be your friend you know because uh, we tend to identify people who are very much like ourselves and it's hard to identify with someone who is in a very different like financial class of people or something like that you can see the appeal to plain folk propaganda being used in politics all the time and in fact it kind of cracks me up because you have somebody who's running for president and you'll have a commercial where uh, the guy's in je blue jeans and you know a torn up t-shirt or whatever and he's on some uh, nickel and dime store out in the, the farmlands joking around with other people right exactly the kind of person you want to run the free world right <laughs> but the whole idea behind that dressing them down uh rubbing elbows with people that look like you and me or whatever you know just ordinary hoi ploy joke six-pack people is because it makes them more likable more approachable and people are more apt to trust them even though you know if you think about it you don't want somebody that's just like us, an ordinary Joe Sixpack. You don't want them at the helm. You want somebody who is extraordinary, <laughs> who is extraordinarily qualified and a very good, solid person uh, and that's apt for the job. So it's kind of funny. It's counterintuitive. But that is our propaganda technique for today, the appeal to plain folk. All right, let's meet our early church father. Like I said, a bit obscure. But nevertheless, he is part of this group that we call our early church fathers. Avergus Apontus is his name. Avergus Apontus was born in the Pontus, obviously. Uh, he was ordained a lector by St. Basil the Great and a deacon by St. Gregory Nazianzus. In Jerusalem, he was acquainted with the Roman lady Melina and in his self-imposed exile in the deserts of Egypt, he knew well Macarius and Alexandrian and Macarius the uh, Egyptian, the latter also being called the Great. It's, uh, it's extremely unfortunate that Avergus's very numerous writings have not survived in a better state of preservation, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers. The loss of his works is probably attributed to a large part to his condemnation as an originist in 553 A.D., at the Fifth Ecumenical Council and the Second uh, of the Second of Constantinople, uh, we catch glimpses of him with uh, Maximus Confessor and Isaac of Nineveh and John Bar Calden, John Cassian and Bar uh, Hebraeus. Very little of his works has survived in the original Greek. Somewhat in the Latin, Syriac, Armenian, Arabic, and Ethiopic translations, just enough to what the what the appetite for his many insights. And I think I can quote a couple. Uh, we have his letters, and, and one of his letters is dogmatic letter on the the most blessed Trinity, in which he says the heretics ought to confess that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. Just that is as taught by the divine words and those who have better understanding of the scriptures. To those who accuse us of doctrine of three gods, let it be stated that we confess one God, not in, but not in number, but in nature. For all that is said is to be numerically one, is not one absolutely, nor is it a single nature. 
universally trust that God is simple, not deposit. And coming up next, we'll talk with William Up. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, we're talking about the Eucharist. Uh, Eucharist, of course, is the sum and substance of our faith. It's also one of those areas of the faith that, uh, unfortunately, people are, uh, even Catholics, are losing their belief in the real presence and so it's more important than ever than all us Catholics who do hold the Orthodox true belief in Christ's real true presence in the Eucharist, be able to give good reasons for that belief. And uh, last yesterday, last cl- program, we uh, we had William Albrecht on, and we looked in depth at Scripture and also the early church. Well, guess what, folks? Uh, here he is again to give us yet another download of some awesome, awesome uh, patristic text. And of course, William is the purveyor of patristicpillars.com. He's a noted Catholic debater. He's debated over 50 people. Uh, He's written a number of books, including uh, The Secret History of Transubstantiation. Uh, He uh, is a co-partner with me on YouTube on the Pocket for Apocalypse he has his own channel, William Albrecht, on YouTube. And, William, you know, your list just gets longer and longer. And I'm afraid that if you keep on expanding your ministry, we just won't have time for the interview. I'll just read the introduction. All, all glory to God, Gary. Just really having a great, great time uh, doing a whole lot, uh, debating a lot, writing a lot, um, giving a lot of talks. Really, it's a lot of fun. And I think really, Gary, when it comes down to it, you brought up something very important at the introduction, the idea that uh, really the, the the heart of our faith really should be the belief in the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. And at a time where apologetics is popular, people are, are, are enjoying tuning in, hearing stuff, I think the important thing that, that tends to get lost sometimes behind all of the debating and everything else is the fact that we've got to spend time with our Lord in the Eucharist as well. And behind all of the theology, realize that um, there is a message behind the the theology. And that message is uh, the truth that our Lord is truly present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, sometimes people ask me and they'll say, well, how on earth, um, you know, how, how on earth can you truly believe that? Well, we believe that because the Bible lays it out. And because of the testimony, the unanimous testimony of the followers of our Lord. Uh, and I think that is, I don't think, I know that that is solid enough for us to have a firm foundational belief in this. And I think today, as we continue diving into the early church fathers, those were, that were either taught and trained directly by the apostles or by disciples of theirs, we realize that this unbroken chain of believing that the Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Christ was really important to the early followers. Um, and I think when we realize that and we look at the incredible figures whose words and testimony we're reading, it really should push us more and more towards getting to church and getting to Mass. I think that's the number one message behind everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if uh, the apologetics, if it, it doesn't also inform your, your faith life, yeah, you know what good is it? Because uh, yep. God can God can convert anybody. I mean, look at Saul. 
he didn't need uh, an apologist to come and answer objections. <laughs> yeah. He just converted. So, you know, he calls us to apologetics really for our own good. No doubt. It really, it really is for our own good. And uh, as, as we've pointed out many times uh, before, every, every honor, every glory goes to God. And that's uh, the most important thing that we're really, really focused upon. Yesterday, we left off on um, an incredible early church father, the great uh, St. Justin the Martyr. Now, I know uh, people sometimes will say, well, you know, what kind of a last name is Martyr? It's not his last name. It was given that because he was... Um, he was given that title because he was martyred. He died for the faith. As you know very well, Gary, because um, you've written an incredible book, Hostile Witnesses. Those hostile witnesses, as you know, Gary, were hunting down Catholics for hundreds of years before the faith became legalized. You couldn't worship freely. You would be martyred. You would be killed. And a lot of great saints, doctors of the church, they died in those early centuries, one of them being the great St. Justin the Martyr. Yesterday we read about uh, his incredible testimony when it comes to the Eucharist. He talks about how the enemies of the faith deny it. Why do they deny it? They deny things that are very key, crucial to the faith. We heard that from St. Ignatius of Antioch as well. But there's another thing that perhaps we, we tend to overlook from the great St. Justin the Martyr. There's another text where he says, and this is in his um, the very same writing. Uh, indeed, he wrote a number of, uh, of letters, and this one is in his uh, dialogue with Trifo. Trifo the Jew, he also wrote great, he wrote multiple great apologies. And in each one we have, when he talks about the Eucharist, not only do we have a great theology of the Eucharist truly becoming the body and blood of our Lord, but the fact that it's a sacrifice as well. That's something that we've talked about it here on the show before. But this particular text is incredible. He says, and the offering of, of fine flour, sir, as I said, which was prescribed to be presented on behalf of those purified from lep leprosy, was a type of the bread of the Eucharist, the celebration of which our Lord Jesus Christ prescribed in remembrance of the suffering which he endured on behalf of those who are purified in soul from all iniquity in order that we may at the same time thank God for having created the world. So here's the one thing that's important there is we couple that with his previous text where he talks about the Eucharist no longer being common bread and wine. After the prayers, we also realize the incredible theology that the Eucharist is a remembrance. But you know, what is what are we calling to mind? What are we remembering? The Greek word for remembrance that we find in the scriptures is a Greek word, anamnesis, and the Greek word anamnesis points toward a sacrificial kind of remembrance, a, a real true sacrifice. So the Eucharist, we tend to forget, but right there bound up with transubstantiation is the fact that it, it, it is a real sacrifice. And I think once we also focus on that and uh, add that to the incredible theology we're already looking at that is being laid out in the Bible and in the early incredible early church fathers. We have such an, a magnificent picture of what is going on there there at the holy sacrifice of the mass. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great survey of the information. Yeah, and uh, you know, and that's why the early church fathers are so powerful for defending the faith and explaining the Eucharist. Yeah, they really are incredibly powerful, Gary. When we when we um realize who we're talking about, what we're reading. Another incredible figure uh, is the great doctor, 
just got me the doctor of the church by Pope Francis. And we we have to say thank you, Pope Francis. It was a long time coming. That would be the great Saint Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, probably right in about 170 to 180, just in the martyr around 150 to 160. Very early again, an anti-Nicene father and the great Irenaeus, he was taught and trained by the incredible Saint Bishop Polycarp. Bishop Polycarp taught and trained by the Apostle John. So we have a very clear line of what we call apostolic succession. Irenaeus was a magnificent mind, an incredible early church father, and in him, what incredible theology we read, Gary, we read. Again, giving directions to his disciples to offer to God the first fruits of his own, created things, not as if he stood in need of them, but that they might be themselves neither unfruitful nor ungrateful. He took that created thing, bread, and gave things, and said, this is my body, and the cup likewise, which is part of that creation to which we belong. He confessed to be his blood and taught the new oblation of the new covenant, which the church receiving from the apostles offers to God throughout all the world. He would add to that by noting the word of God becomes the Eucharist, which is the body and the blood of Christ. So also our bodies be nourished by it and deposited in the earth and suffering decomposition there shall rise at their appointed time. The word of God granting them resurrection to the glory of God, even the father who freely gives to this mortal immortality. Now, here's the incredible thing, Gary, very similar, right along the lines of the language of the great St. Justin the Martyr, who talks about our bodies being nourished, being changed by the Eucharist. We have that also in St. Irenaeus. He tells us, it, it, look, Gary, it can't get any clearer than this. The word of God becomes a Eucharist. I mean, that's pretty clear to me, which... And then here's another thing, Gary. Yesterday, you, you brought up an incredible point. You said, well, William, William, there's got to be an objection on the Protestant side. What is it? Now, we looked at one yesterday. And today, we're going to look at a very common one that you hear. You will hear Protestants say, well, you know what? The Greek word Eucharist, Eucharistia, uh, really all it really means is Thanksgiving. So you don't know if they're always talking about the bread and the wine. Well, there can be no doubt here what is being talked about. Because when it says the word of God becomes the Eucharist, Irenaeus tells you, what is the Eucharist? He says, which is the body and blood of Christ. So our bodies are being nourished and we rise. We rise to glory. Uh, the Eucharist nourishes us, provides us with incredible spiritual nourishment. So really, Gary, we stop and we think this kind of language, as we talked about yesterday, could never be utilized ever for a symbolic Eucharist. And I pointed out yesterday, I want to be fair, because I know there are groups of Protestants that will say, look, we don't only believe it's a symbol, we believe in the real presence. This language became more freely utilized in the late 1800s, Gary, where Protestants tried to hijack it and began saying, no, we believe in the real presence. We truly believe Christ is present beside us, but not present there in the Eucharist, but beside us. Well, Gary, I've got to be very clear. Uh, that, that really is just tricky language for saying the Eucharist is symbolic because we could agree that Christ is beside us as well. 
uh, but we believe he's truly present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And if the early fathers didn't mean that, well, they wouldn't say it's no longer common bread and drink. And I think that really is a trouble for Protestants to get around. But I, I know what they're trying to do, Gary. They're having a problem. They realize that their faith doesn't square, square with the ancient faith. They're trying to keep their congregations filled with people who are more and more diving into the early church and more and more becoming Catholic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, William, that is so crucial. The, that, the point is that there really is a change that occurs with yeah. the bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Uh, hence, that's why he wrote a book targeting transubstantiation, right? Because that really is the hinge. Otherwise, if you if you don't see that transition, it could kind of be open to people saying, well, you know, they're talking spiritually and things like that. But if you have that change, it, it can't be. Gary, you're 100% correct in that point. And, and when we when we targeted in, in, in writing that book, we reached out to representatives of all the apostolic churches and the message was unanimous with the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Oriental Orthodox Church. All of us believe in transubstantiation. This is the beating heart of the apostolic faith. Absolutely. We're chatting with William Albrecht of patristicpillars.com talking about the Eucharist and the early church. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands on Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands on Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Hands on Apologetics, and we're chatting with Master Apologist William Albrecht talking about the Eucharist and the early church. And, uh, yeah, William, great stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, I know he's one of your favorite early church fathers. He certainly is one of mine. And... Uh, Usually, I have to be honest, when it comes to early church fathers in the Eucharist, Ignatius of Antioch, who is also a fantastic uh, early church father as well, kind of, you know, he kind of hogs the spotlight because he's so (laughs) explicit and so early. But, you know, just a martyr, Irenaeus, they too, you know, give this really robust view of the Eucharist. Yeah, there, there really is no doubt, uh, Gary. And I think one thing we also uh, we aim, aim to do in the book that we put out on transubstantiation was really uh, double down and, and examine um, the figure of, uh, of Nestorius. Because people tend to people tend to fast forward to the time of, uh, of Berengarius and, and various other figures and um, and tend to stop and, and uh, look at Retramnus, Radbertus and others. And um all those names, very familiar names when talking about debates surrounding the Eucharist, um, Pascasius, if I didn't already mention him, uh, all very popular names. But you don't, you tend to not think about Nestorius, who really was the very first one within the church, because he was part of the church. Um, he was the, the very first one to deny transubstantiation. And it caused an uproar. When you think of Nestorius, and one of the very first things that you think of is the denial of Holy Mary as Theotokos, as God-bearer. But there's more problems with Nestorius, and it just goes to show you that when you lack a proper Mariology, you lack a proper Christology, and and, and vice versa. Uh, and in our book, we provide a, a translation over there of what Nestorius has to say, and a very clear uproar from the great, the incredible uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria, 
who we look to as being one of the greatest Christologists of all time. Uh, our Oriental Orthodox brethren love him. Catholics love him. Eastern Orthodox love him. He's a saint for all of us. <clears throat> but at times we tend to overlook the great Saint Augustine. And I thought it was it was it was it was very important to to double down on Augustine. Now, why is that? <clears throat> because the language, and we bring it out in the book, of transubstantiation, transmutation, comes out very clearly in the great Saint Ambrose. You would expect it to also be present in his father, his spiritual uh, and his uh, son, because he was the spiritual father of the great Augustine. Ambrose taught and trained the great Saint Augustine, so he was his spiritual father. And you do find it much more developed, and that doesn't mean that Ambrose wasn't incredible, he was magnificent, but there's very few fathers, Gary, that wrote as much as the great St. Augustine. So of course you would expect him to develop it. I remember when I was preparing for a debate on purgatory, I found about eight different areas where Augustine talks about purgatory, so he was very developed in everything. And he talks about the Eucharist a whole lot. And Gary, the reason it's important that we look at Augustine um, is because he is such a focal part, a focal figure who was writing in the late fourth century into the early fifth century. And Protestants will at times adopt Augustine for various reasons, but they have a lot of trouble with Augustine's Eucharistic theology. And there's one particular sermon of his, we'll read the quote first, Sermon 227. And this really does get to the heart of it, Gary, because in this sermon he says, that bread which you see in the altar having been sanctified by the word of God, is the body of Christ. That chalice, or rather, what is in that chalice, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the blood of Christ. Through that bread and wine, the Lord Christ will commend his body and blood, which he poured out for us unto the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that language is, is very clear. The bread that you're looking, your eyes are telling you it's bread. And your eyes are also telling you that you're looking at a chalice and you're, you, there's wine in that chalice. But what does he say? Having been sanctified by the word is the body of Christ. And also for the chalice, after the sanctification, it is the blood of Christ. And I think that when you realize that being put forth by Augustine, you've got to pause and think, okay, we've got a great Christologist, great defender of Christ as eternal God, incredible defender of the Holy Trinity, and he is telling you that what you're looking at there on the altar, by the way, what is offered at an altar? It is a true sacrifice. Mm -hmm. and, and look at that, Gary. What is he telling you? It's truly our Lord. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's what we Catholics, as Catholics, we point that out. And when you look at that, let me ask you this, Gary, there really is no room for the symbolic there, is there? No, no, not at all. I mean, you have, like you said, not only do you have this assertion about the real yeah. presence, but you also have that allusion to sacrifice as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like either way you cut it, you know, there is a real victim there. Yeah. Oh, great point there. No doubt. And <clears throat> you find a lot more. What was really incredible about the great Augustine, Gary, was that he would write one thing, and at times he would return to the very same idea a few sermons later. We find that in Sermon 234, where this is the, the theme that we've really been going at yesterday and today. The fact that Justin the Martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, 
uh, Irenaeus, especially Irenaeus and Justin the Martyr, who are writing in the 100s, begin talking about common or ordinary bread. But that bread stops being ordinary and normal bread when it has been prayed over, when it has received the sanctification. Now, Augustine says the very same thing. He said the Lord Jesus wanted those whose eyes were held lest they should recognize him, to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. The faithful know what I am saying. They know Christ in the breaking of the bread. And here we go. For not all bread, but only that which receives the blessing of Christ becomes Christ's body. Now, Gary, uh, a pastor, a Protestant evangelical pastor at the pulpit, could never tell his flock, any of them, I don't care if you're, you're Methodist, Church of Christ, uh, Pentecostal, Baptist, I don't care what kind. None of them are going to be able to tell their flock, hey, that over there, the, the, that bread over there, that is, you know, regular, common bread. But the one that we're about to bless becomes Christ's body. They cannot utilize that kind of language. They don't believe in that kind of language. They don't have a real priesthood. And this kind of language is utilized by the early church fathers, Gary, for the very clear reason that they believed in transubstantiation. Some utilizing words like transmutation, some words like metousios, ultimately all mean the very same thing. And Gary, I, I gotta be very clear here. This kind of language being utilized by these early church fathers it was very common. If there was an uproar when Nestorius denied transubstantiation, because there was an uproar in a lot of things that he did wrong, and if there was an uproar in that particular denial, well, that tells you very clearly this was the being heart of the church. If immediately the fathers stood up in unison and said, this man is wrong, just like the heresies of Arius, just like the heresies of Paulo Samosata, and, and we can go on and on. Every time a heresy would rear his head, its head, a great defender of the faith would pop up and say no. But why would they do that, Gary? They would tell you no, that is not the faith that was handed down to us. And I think that as a Catholic, when we are told that the Eucharist is merely symbolic or only spiritual, by the way, when they use that word spiritual, it's not the way the Bible or the early fathers use it. They ultimately mean something along the lines of symbolism. Uh, there's a problem there because that doesn't line up with what the apostolic Christians believed. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. You know, it's kind of like the dog that barked or didn't bark. <laughs> you know, it's uh, there's you have this, you know, crickets. When all yep. this uh, language is being preached about the real substantial presence, the sacrifice of the mass. But then once you have, uh, you know, uh, somebody contest it, then all of a sudden everything breaks loose. And you could see all the protests from all different quarters, all the denying the new heresy. So it's yep. clearly uh, the innovation is clearly denying uh, the real presence of the Eucharist. Without a doubt, that would be the innovation. And I think that's the most important point, that it indeed is an innovation. Now, 
talking about uh, you know innovations, there was a uh, a manuscript that was unfortunately uh, uh, riddled with errors, problems in the Latin, and uh, Augustine got his hands on it, and he was preparing to do a sermon and preparing for uh, probably a sermon for mass, and the manuscript was uh, was corrupted. You know, it was a corrupt manuscript, and he begins reading it. And in that corrupt manuscript, for God knows what reason, how the copier put down that David carried him in his own hands. How on earth? Now, thank the good Lord for the providence of that faulty manuscript. Because Augustine must have been sitting down and must have said, what on earth? Well, how, how on earth could David have literally held himself? But then he stops and says, well, you know, I have no clue. I'll trust the word of God. I don't know how David could have carried himself. But you know what? Let me weave this into a magnificent sermon because I do know how Christ carried himself. And because of that faulty manuscript, we have one of the greatest commentaries ever on the Eucharist, which is very similar to a commentary by Aphrahat. And Augustine says, how this? And he was carried in his own hands should be understood literally of David. We cannot discover, he says, but we can discover how it is meant of Christ. For Christ was carried in his own hands. When referring to his own body, he said, this is my body. For he carried that body in his hands. Gary, that's really incredible, isn't it? And I'm glad we're about to come up into a break because the audience got to meditate on that because that truly is profound. Yeah, yeah, it, it truly is. And uh, and such a mystery, too. It really does, yeah. you know, uh, highlight how mysterious this uh, work of God truly is. We're chatting yeah. with William Albrecht of PatristicPillars.com, author of the book, The Secret History of Transubstantiation. More to come right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Albrecht, talking about the Eucharist and the early church. And, uh, yeah, William, fantastic points. And, uh, man, uh, these are points that not only do we have to know as apologists and defenders of the faith, but we really need to take it to heart and truly appreciate, the, you know, the mis the mystery that is the Eucharist. Gary, Gary, I really do think that that really is the the best point to make. That earlier in the show, I said that uh, a lot of what we are doing um, in apologetics is is theology, and sometimes people will say, well, "What do you mean by that?" And I say, "Well, with our limited, finite minds." There is only so much we can do and explain incredible mysteries because I may tell the audience exactly that the Eucharist is truly the body, blood, and soul, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. But I can't truly wrap my mind around that. My finite mind, I believe it because biblically, historically, sacred tradition-wise as well, it, it is true. But to be able to say that I understand that in every single aspect would be foolish. We are finite creatures, and our finite mind, uh, it's very difficult to wrap our mind around that. But I know that our Lord is omnipotent, omniscient, 
uh, every single omni that you can think of. And I know that there is nothing outside of the grasp or power or ability of our Lord. And I know that if our Lord promised, if our Lord said that he was going to die on the cross and rise again, and he truly did that, well, goodness, Gary, if he says that the Eucharist is truly his body and blood, then I believe that as well. I tend to believe everything that our Lord says because everything is true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it really does come down to, do you do you believe that the Son of Man is who he says he is, right? Yeah. And if yep. so, then you follow his words, even though it may, you know, like Peter said, uh, you know, Lord, to whom dost we go? You have the words of yep. your own life. That that really is the, the, the heart of it, Gary. And we were talking about the incredible St. Cyril of Alexandria, uh, Pope St. Leo the Great. The one thing that I, I, I find so fascinating, Gary, is our evangelical friends a lot of the times will um, will look towards the councils. Some of them will look towards Nicaea I, um, Ephesus, <clears throat> Chalcedon, and they will adopt certain formulas from those councils. Well, we, we want to call our evangelical friends to the fullness of the faith because uh, those fathers at those councils that would hammering out those creeds believed in transubstantiation. At Chalcedon, the, the Tome of Leo, which uh, was uh, uh, it was originally one of uh, Pope St. Leo the Great's Christmas, sermon, Christmas sermons, and he eventually uh, pretty much uh, plagiarized that into the Tome of Leo himself. He did that himself, so I'm not using plagiarism in the negative sense. I'm using it in the positive sense. Um, but Pope St. Leo the Great in letter 59, I'm not going to read it all right now, but in letter 59, uh, talking about infants, says that even the tongues of infants do not keep silence upon the truth of Christ's body and blood at the rite of Holy Communion. Now, this was not something um, out of the ordinary. And the reason I bring up Pope St. Leo the Great is because I can duplicate the amount of examples of these incredible fathers, of these incredible pillars of the faith that upheld Christology, Orthodox Christology. And our evangelical friends might want to hearken to those creeds or those councils, but if you're gonna hearken to them, take them completely and taking them completely would be realizing that these fathers urged that a proper Christology Along with that came a proper understanding of the Eucharist, and that was the belief in transubstantiation. St. Cyril of Jerusalem tells us, Gary, in Catechetical Lectures 19, he says, the bread and the wine of the Eucharist before the holy invocation of the adorable Trinity were simple bread and wine, but the invocation having been made, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. The theme throughout both of these shows has been common bread and common wine and the lack thereof after the invocation, after the holy prayers. And Gary, that really is the most important point, because if it is no longer ordinary bread and wine, then the idea of a symbolic kind of Eucharist or even I want to be very clear, even to my Lutheran friends who adopt consubstantiation or any anything that is not transubstantiation, I'm sorry, but if a part of the common remains, then that is not the language of the apostolic church. And we call them to understanding and realizing that the fathers talked about transubstantiation, a transformation, a transmutation, which means 
there was no more of the common left. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, that's very good. So, so you have the, like the full blown uh, idea of transubstantiation, although you know it's not formulated quite as precisely as what you'd find, say, at Trent. Right. Yeah. No. No doubt. And 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 there really is no problem with that. Because Trent is formulating things in a deeper theological fashion to deal with the heresies of its day um, and to particularly particular deal with the denial of certain things of much more than just transubstantiation. So you're going to expect much deeper and formulated language because you've gone through century after century of church the debates, theological debates. You've gone through the era of Pascasius, Radbertus, Retramnus, Berengarius of Tours, and, and, um, and Nestorius in particular as well. But it isn't to say that we didn't have language like earlier we talked about the great father of St. Augustine. When we say father, we don't mean uh, literal carnal father. We mean his incredible spiritual father. Because over and over, when you read the, read the great Augustine, he refers to Ambrose as his father all over why is that? Because Ambrose clobbered him over the head of debating, and Gustin could no longer remain outside of the fold. Thanks to our Lord, the providence, all the grace of our Lord, the endless prayers of his mother, St. Monica, Augustine's heart was softened, it was unhardened, and he became Catholic thanks to his uh, spiritual father, Ambrose. Ambrose, we talked about him, in his On the Christian Faith, he really does echo what the church believed, and he says, now we, as often as we receive the sacramental elements, which by the mysterious efficacy of holy prayer are transformed into the flesh and the blood. Now, Gary, that really is incredible language, because you don't need to have a Trent in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries to be able to say this was the belief already. Trent is crystallizing everything beforehand to say, look, this is what was believed from the beginning. But we've got this evidence. All we have to do is take a peek into the early church and you, you realize it was the beating heart of the faith. You couldn't deny transubstantiation and be in right orthodox standing with the church. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. You know, yeah. it really does. Yep, it, it really does go... I mean, and, and the great thing about it, Gary, is we began by looking at a little bit of the New Testament. People may be wondering and saying, you know, there's a lot more. Yeah, we realize that we've done shows looking on at all the other passages. What we wanted to do for you, the audience, with these two shows is to take a dive into early church history before we get to the medieval era. In the future, we'll look at the medieval era, we promise you, uh, because in our book, we do cover medieval fathers. We look at Blessed Lundfranc. And many other figures that we will talk about them later in the future. But we wanted to give you to give you many and multiple early church fathers because it really is important to show the 100s, two, three, four, and on and on. You've got these incredible figures, and they're not just figures, Gary, that are obscure. We're talking about heavy hitters. We're talking about some of the greatest early church fathers, one that I forgot to read. But I'll read him now. He's writing probably in the late 100s, near the 200s. He tells you, this is incredible, the great St. Clement of Alexandria. He says, and the blood of the Lord is twofold. For is there is the blood of his flesh by which we are redeemed from corruption. And look at this. 
and the spiritual. So the blood of the Lord is twofold. Okay, well, what is the spiritual? It must be the symbolic, right? No, he tells you that by which we are anointed and to drink the blood of Jesus is to become partakers of the Lord's immortality. And he goes on to say, and the mixture of both water, the water and the word is called the Eucharist. I mean, Gary, this, it, it can't get any clearer. That St. Clement of Alexandria, one of the leaders of the early ancient catechetical school of Alexandria, a titan, as I like to call him, a patristic pillar. Anywhere we look, Gary, really the only ones that are denying this are those that were out of the fold. They were not part of the fold. And how do we know that they were not part of the one true faith? People will say, well, look, you know, those that won the one the day they wrote the history. Well, no, because the ancient church didn't win the day they were being persecuted. But we can look at, as Gary points out in his incredible book, and if you don't own hostile witnesses, what are you doing if you don't own him? Get a hold of that, because if you look in that book, you have testimonies of people telling you, look, those are the followers of that Christ figure, and they don't talk uh, favorably about Christ, and they'll call them cannibals. Why do the enemies of the faith call the followers of our Lord cannibals? Because they believe the Eucharist truly became the body and blood of Christ. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, thanks for the plug, William. I appreciate that. <laughs> Gary, it's a great book. I mean, I, I, I want to tell the audience, honestly, uh, Gary's stuff is incredible. And that is a book that's one of a kind. Uh, whatever you did when you were writing that book, brother, you were incredibly inspired. And I know you must have spent a lot of time meditating at Holy Mass because that book is an incredibly written book. Well, thank you, William. I appreciate that. And, you know, it's it's... Like you said, all glory goes to God, yeah. and you know it's it's precisely because it's so incredible what God does in the Eucharist that you have pushback from pagans and others, yep. you know, in in regards to that. And and the beautiful yep. thing, as you know, William, is that provides us with even more witness that this is the faith. This is the the faith that comes to us from the apostles. Sure does. Um, hey, we only have a, a, a little bit left. Tell us a little bit about what's cooking on Patristic Pillars. Yeah, people, head on over there. You can check out everything I'm working on. Later this month, I will be over at Pipes with Aquinas debating and defending purgatory. And I will definitely come back here to talk to you, the audience, about it afterwards. So keep an eye out for that. And God willing, more books, more articles, more talks. Gary, can't wait to be back on, brother. All right. Well, hey, William, thank you so much. It's been awesome having you with us. Thank you. All right. William Albrecht, patristicpillars.com. And yeah, keep him in your prayers for his upcoming debate as well. Wow. Okay. Well, that finishes a week here on Hands-On Apologetics. It's time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center, turn off the dojo lights. Thank you so much for listening. And coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Justice Show. Pat Willing will be back again Monday. We'll see you on Sunday.